The following audio is from Acts Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Acts is available at actschurchleander.com. Uh, well, as I mentioned before we read the text, we are in our final week of this series we've been in called The Good Life. Uh, and we've been going through the book of Ecclesiastes, and, uh, and that's written by this guy who calls himself Koheleth, or the, the preacher. You heard it there in that text. He calls himself Koheleth in Hebrew, and it's a fun word, so I've been using it this entire series. Uh, and uh, at any rate, uh, the, the whole point of the book of Ecclesiastes is aimed to teach us to live a wise life, to teach us how to navigate life well. And we've said that, that in order to do that, it's about becoming, wisdom is about becoming the right kind of person who makes the right kind of decisions because they've considered the right kind of questions. All right, that's, that's what we've seen. And hopefully, man, I, I hope this series uh, has been fruitful for many of you as, as you've been a part of it. Uh, I know I've really enjoyed it, like digging into Ecclesiastes has been awesome. Uh, I mentioned it actually for me at the, the beginning of this series. Uh, Ecclesiastes is my second favorite book in the whole Bible. It's my favorite book in the Old Testament. Uh, I know you guys probably have your top rankings too. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Only us nerds do. But at any rate, um, and, and, and I love Ecclesiastes because this may come as a shock to some of you, but I love it because it's kind of like dark and brooding and just sort of melancholy. And, uh, and I don't know what's wrong with me, but I just really resonate with that sort of thing. Like if, if you guys have followed along in this series, I just, I just love that sort of like where it's just like, yeah, things are hard. Like I just love it, right? So for example... Um, when my son Titus was born, uh, people, they, uh, they gave us a bunch of gifts and gave us a lot of books. And uh, one of the books that, that we received was a book called On the Night You Were Born. Have any of you ever heard of this book? Okay, we got any? Okay, if you've ever read it. Okay, so for those of you that, that are not familiar with it, the, the gist of On the Night You Were Born goes something like this. Like, like you read it and it's basically, on the night you were born, all these sort of magical things happened around the world. That on the night you were born, the, the polar bears danced an extra special dance, and the, the birds sang a song, and the stars twinkled that much brighter, and, and the sun and the moon just gave each other high fives, and it's just like all this stuff. And I remember reading this to Titus, my little infant son at the time, and I just looked at him and was like, buddy, this is a bunch of nonsense. Like, I, I, don't, I am sorry, but like, this is just garbage. And I was like, do you know what happened on the night you were born? A bunch of other kids were born bunch of other people died. The earth kept spinning. Like, this is, it's just nonsense. And so I've started developing my own uh, children's book series. Uh, the, the first one is called Settle. You're not that special. Um, and it's followed by its sequel, uh, The Littlest Cog in the Biggest Machine. So um, I'm, I'm a big fan of those things. Um, at any rate, so, uh, so, so my pessimism and melancholy aside, uh, you may have noticed this, we're at this, this point in the final chapter of Ecclesiastes where, much to my chagrin, uh, Koheleth's language begins to change. Where for like the first 11 chapters of Ecclesiastes, everything we've gone through, he's just been a negative Nancy. But now, in chapter 12, he starts to turn. And things are, are, he frames things in a more positive light, so much so that, that some scholars even think that another author came in and kind of wrote this postscript at the end just to sort of smooth things out. Like, well, he got a little crazy there, so let's just make it look nice at the end. Uh, I don't think that's what happened, but some people say that. Uh, and so what's happened is in the book of Ecclesiastes, if you've been with us, is Koheleth has just deconstructed everything. Like he's just broken everything down. Everything in this world that we would try to find pleasure, wisdom, joy in that's detached from God. Everything in this world that we'd try to find pleasure in detached from God, he's broken it down. He's poked holes in all of it. 
And he says, that's not going to work. That's not going to satisfy. And that's what he does for 11 chapters. But now in chapter 12, he finally begins to build us back up again. And he says, this is what the good life really consists of. This is how the good life works. And what we'll see in our text is that there's three parts to it. He says the good life is a life of gratitude, it's a life of joy, and it's a life of adventure. Let me get my order right, though. It's a life of gratitude, a life of adventure, and a life of joy. Life of gratitude, life of adventure, life of joy. All right? And so let's get into it. If you guys look with me at verse 1, it says this. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. All right, so here, Kohelis says, remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. Why? He says, because evil days are coming, because tough times are ahead, things are going to get rough. And then we didn't read it uh, just now, but we read it earlier. The next five verses, I don't know if you guys caught that part, but he describes as like these really profound images of, of bowls breaking and wheels busting and all this sort of like destructive image, really kind of poignant images. Uh, and it's, that's all just sort of imagery most scholars think of, of dying. He says, hey, remember God in your youth because rough days are ahead. You're going to die. Rough stuff is happening. So remember your creator. So what's he saying? Well, there's a couple things going on here, all right? So first of all, he says, remember, remember. Now, the, the, the Hebrew word for remember there is the word zakar, zakar. Uh, and, and it carries with it uh, this, this covenant language, like just hundreds of times throughout the Old Testament, again and again and again and again, God is always calling his people in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, he's always calling them to remember, to remember his covenant with them. That whenever things are going bad for them, when, when they're in exile, when their city is under siege, when things are a mess, he says, hey, remember he says, hey, remember, I'm the God who delivered you from slavery. Remember, I'm the God who's bound himself to you. Remember, I'm the God who said, you're my chosen possession. Remember me. And so then for us as Christians today, when we think of that word remember, we can remember the covenant that God's made with each of you. Where he says, hey, remember when you were far off, when you weren't looking for me, when you were lost in your sin, I sent Jesus for you. He went to the cross for you. He's forgiven you of all your sins. I've now bound myself to you for all eternity. Remember that. Remember the covenant I've given you. But not only that, he says, remember your creator. Your creator. Now it's interesting he does that, right? Because he says, remember, which is, is tied to God's covenant with his people. And so typically, it'd be tied to his covenant name with his people, which in the Old Testament was Yahweh. Remember Yahweh, that, that he's the God with his people. But he doesn't say that. He says, remember your creator. Why does he do that? It's as if he's saying, don't just remember God's saving grace in your life. Remember that. But don't just remember God's saving grace in your life. Remember God's sustaining grace in your life. Remember God's sustaining grace. That the very fact that you are alive is a gift. It says, remember that every breath you breathe is a gift. That every time you sleep in your house and you put on your clothes and you eat and you drink and you laugh with your friends and you hug your kids, 
everything good in this creation, he says, remember that it's a gift. That he's given it to you. It's from your creator. And so health is saying here, listen, have a posture of gratitude to God for his saving grace and for his sustaining grace. And so he says, live in gratitude of God's goodness because rough days are ahead. Rough days are ahead. Uh, so this last week, uh, I was doing uh, some counseling with actually quite a lot of people, but, but one individual uh, who's, who's not connected to our church, so I'm trying to figure it out. They're, they're really just not. It was someone who I met in our community. And, uh, and, and I sat down uh, with this, this lady, and, and, I'm, and I'm talking with her, and she's sharing with me what's going on in her life. And, and I'll be honest, it was, it was tough stuff. It was, it was a hard situation. Uh, but as I was like trying to help her process through this stuff, everything she was going through, she just kept bucking me. Like, like every time I try to just offer maybe some hope or some support or understanding, she just poke holes in absolutely anything I said again and again. I don't know if, if you've ever had someone who you're trying to help just kind of like beat you up for your kindness. You ever have that? Isn't that the best? It's awesome, right? Uh, it's, no, it's super frustrating, right? And so after a while, I was just like, you know what? Listen, like I, there, there's nothing else I can say. And I said, so, so just, you know, I'm, I'm going to pray for you. And she goes, well, a lot of good that's done me so far. And she walked out. Now listen, this is why Kohelis says, remember your creator in gratitude. Because the reality is, when, when things are tough, when things aren't going well, when hardship comes, the temptation to become bitter, the temptation to become cynical, to get angry and closed off is very, very real. And so Kohela says, don't let that happen. He says, remember your creator in gratitude, even when it's hard. He says, remember that he sent Jesus for you, that he's bound himself to you. Remember that God's created you, that he sustains you, that your life is a gift. You live in gratitude to the giver. So we live the good life as we live in gratitude to our creator. But then he goes on to point out that the good life has adventure in it. All right, so if you guys skip ahead with me, we're going to go to verse 11 here. Right, so this, he says, the, the words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. All right, so he says here, the, the words of the wise are like goads. Uh, goads were, were like spiked sticks that they would use to kind of move an animal along to, to herd cattle. So you kind of think of it like a spur, right? That you get hit by it and it moves you into action is the idea. So he says, the words of the wise are like goads. And then he says that the collected sayings are like nails firmly fixed. That the collected sayings, they, they provide support. They hold things in place. They provide stability. And then he says, all the words of the wise, all the collected sayings, they're given by one shepherd. Now, what's he talking about there? Well, you notice the, the S is capitalized, right? And the reason that's the case is, is he's really talking about, he's talking about all of Scripture as far as he knew it at that time. And he's saying, all of Scripture, everything we have, everything we know that, that's wise, that's, that's true of this world about how to live, is, is coming not from some leader or some wise man or, or some king, but it's coming from the ultimate shepherd, from the ultimate wise, wise one. It's coming from God. That's why the S is capitalized. That all of God's truth, it's coming from Him. In other words, 
the wisdom and words we find in Scripture come to us from God himself. And what we see here is that they spur us into action and give us a stable foundation in life. And both of those things are key for having adventure, right? To be spurred into action and to have a stable foundation in life. See, if God's word just spurs you into action and, and you have no adventure, though, because you have no direction, where are you going? You're just going. You need the foundation of his word. But if God's word doesn't move you into action and it's just a foundation, you've got no adventure because you're just sitting there on a foundation, bored, right? And so listen, let me maybe speak in some generalities here, all right? It's a little dangerous. All right, so some of my more left-leaning friends, if you will, are really big on being spurred into action. Love being spurred. They, they care about justice. They want to see people treated right, which is great. I share that passion. But when that's detached from the foundation of God's Word, it ends up being a pursuit of whatever's fashionable to support at that time. Oh, this is what we're offended by this week. All right, let's go. Right? It's, it, there's, there's no aim to it. Progress for the sake of progress is useless. There's no direction. On the other hand, some of my friends who maybe lean a little bit more right, they think, hey, you know, we're, we're sitting on the firm foundation of God's word. I know what's right. I know what's wrong. I'm holding fast to it. Nothing's going to move me. I get that. Okay? Share that passion too. But guess what? If you're not doing anything, zeal for God's truth detached from concrete love for other people in this world just looks boring and mean, and useless. And so Kohelis says, the words of Scripture, they move you into action, and they're a firm foundation for your life. It's got to be rooted on God's truth. You need both. That's the only way you have adventure. It's the only way you have adventure. So probably the, uh, the greatest adventure story of all time is uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, trilogy, The Lord of the Rings. Got any other nerds out there? Okay, thank you. Good. Oh, yeah. A real dorky church. Love it. Okay, good. Um, at any rate, uh, and so the premise of the story, which apparently you all know, is, uh, is this idea that, uh, you know, there's this ring, and, and it's got to be destroyed, and someone's got to take it to this very specific place to destroy it, because if the bad guy, Sauron, gets a hold of it, he's going to have complete control of, of the world. He's just going to ruin everything, right? And so they got to destroy the ring, and the person who steps up to destroy this ring to save the entire world is this little hobbit, Frodo, right? This little guy, and he says, I'm the one that's going to do it. I'm going to take that little ring. I'm going to do what needs to be done to save the world, and he does it. And in one of his letters later in life, uh, Tolkien explains why he wrote it this way. So let me just share with you what he said. Here we meet, among other things, the first example of the motive to become dominant in hobbits, that the great policies of world history, the wheels of the world, are often turned not by the lords and governors, even gods, but by the seemingly unknown and weak owing to the secret life and creation and the part unknowable to all wisdom but one that resides in the intrusions of the children of God into the drama. So Tolkien, who's a Christian, by the way, his, his point here is that the greatest adventures 
The greatest movements in the world don't happen with the rich and powerful, but they happen in the lives of God's people when they're rooted in his word and move forward in action. I mean, think about it. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. He launched the greatest movement in the history of the world. doesn't matter if you believe in him or not. He launched the greatest movement in the history of the world. And outside of the Gospels, he's a footnote on any other historical writing at that time. And man, I think of the adventures that so many of you are on as you're following Jesus right now. That we have multiple families in our church that have taken needy people into their homes. We have so many of you here that are so plugged into various spheres in our community, bringing the gospel to people that would have nothing to do with church. That there are so many of you we talked about earlier that are living lives of just radical generosity, like it's just silly. We got folks here that are, are traveling around the world to advance the gospel, to support our brothers and sisters uh, across the globe. We have those of you here that are are leveraging your social capital to invite people to church who would never touch it with a 10-foot pole. We have those of you that are forgiving your enemies and you're you're loving your neighbors, and the list could go on and on with all the things that God's doing just through this tiny little church in Central Texas. And isn't it, though, for you guys, when when you do that stuff, when you're in that life, when you're in that group, like, like, isn't that the best? Like, it's hard, like crazy hard. But aren't there moments where you're just like, man, like this is what I was made for? And the truth is, you were. You were. And so the good life is one of gratitude, it's one of adventure, and it's one of joy. Look with me at the final two verses in Ecclesiastes. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. All right, so here it is. It's the end of the book, and if you guys were here, you remember the beginning of the book, Koheleth gets up and he says, hey, all of life is meaningless under the sun, right? He just smacks in the face. But then in the end, he gets really practical. He says, all right, fine. This is what it all boils down to. This is your end goal in life. Fear God, keep his commandments. That's it. But then he goes on, and he he just had to add verse 14, right? Where he says, for God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. And so I say that, and someone says, where's the joy, right? Where's the joy in this passage? Like, So we're supposed to fear God, obey him, and then he's going to judge us? What exactly am I supposed to be happy about in that situation? Right? It sounds terrifying. It does, and it should, because it's true. It's true. Consistently throughout Scripture, God calls all people to obey Him. All people. And consistently throughout Scripture, God says He's going to judge us based on whether or not they obeyed His commands. It's just true. It's in there. And this should actually be terrifying to us because none of us has a moral leg to stand on. Like, I don't care how nice you think you are. Do you see this? He says, every secret thing is going to be brought out into the open. Everything. Any lust-filled thought, any hate-filled moment, any secret lies, any sins, 
all that is going to be exposed when you stand before the judgment seat of God. That's what he's saying. If we actually take that seriously, no one's got a shot. The scale's not balancing out. Isn't going to happen. And then we like to say, well, yeah, 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 but Jesus. Here's the thing. When Jesus walked the earth, he talked about God's judgment all of the time. All the time. I know we like to imagine him just sort of walking around, petting sheep and offering free hugs. Okay, but, but, but the reality is, like, his message had an edge to it. That God's judgment is real, and it's coming. But here's the joy. Here's the joy. There's this part in John chapter 5 where Jesus is talking, and he's talking to his disciples, and he starts talking about God's judgment. And then he actually ratches it up and out, and he says, God's not really going to judge you. He says, I'm going to judge you. I'm going to be the judge. I'm going to be the one bringing down the hammer. Gosh, it's just getting warm in here. What do we do? But then he says this beautiful line. John 5, 24. Listen to what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And so listen, Jesus says, hey, everyone is going to be judged. It's going to happen. But he says, listen, you put your trust in me. You put your hope in me. You bind yourself to me. You're not going to be judged. Everyone's going to be judged. But you put yourself in me. You trust in me. You're not going to be judged. You're going to pass from death to life. Boom. Free. Check clear. You're good to go. Now, how can Jesus say this? How can Jesus get away with saying this? Because Jesus is the judge who is judged. Jesus was judged on your behalf. See, the cross is when Jesus faces God's judgment day justice. And he's found guilty. That all your sins, all your stuff, all your baggage, all the darkness in this world is placed on him. And he stands before God and he faces God's judgment for our sin, for your sin. And is found guilty. But three days later, God raises him from the dead and that's really good news. Because what that means is that Jesus' price that he paid for our sins, it means that the check cleared. And that God stamped him and said, you're good to go. You're, you're set free. You're validated. And so now, because of that, God offers you the approval that he gave to Jesus, the innocence that belongs to Jesus, and the new life to all who receive him, for all who put their trust in him. I love how Romans 6 puts it. Speaking about Jesus here, Romans 6, 10 to 11. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So here, let me put it really simply. This is what that says. For those of you that are in Christ Jesus, this is what that says. It says that you've already faced judgment day and you've been declared innocent. That on the cross, Jesus faced it for you and he's treated as if he lived your life so that you can be treated 
as if you lived his. Okay, hear that. On the cross, Jesus is treated as if he lived your life so that you can be treated by God as if you lived his. And so in him, you're innocent, you're forgiven, you're made holy. Like there's nothing to fear. Like you're good to go, baby. And that's the joy. That's the joy. And see, recognize, like, not you, you have to worry about judgment. You don't have to think about, oh, am I doing enough? Am I doing enough? I balance the scale out. Do I got to figure out? You don't got to think about that. You're set free to live in joy. You're set free now to actually fear God and actually keep his commandments. It's like uh, John Steinbeck says in, in East of Eden. I love it. He says, now that you don't have to be perfect, you can be good. Isn't that good, right? Now you don't have to be perfect, you can be good. And see, here's how that works. When you, when you recognize all that Jesus has done for you, you're free to actually do the things that God's called you to. Uh, so there's this scene in, in, uh, in Melville's Moby Dick, uh, for those of you that, that have read it, and um, there's a moment in which the, the boat is just kind of uh, sailing across this frothing ocean, and there's just sort of a, it's a chaotic scene, right? And, and all the sailors are, are working really hard, and they're sweating, and they're cussing up a storm. They're just making it happen. And the whale is just going, and Captain Ahab, of course, you know him, he's just angry and enraged, and, and he's all ticked off, and there's just all this commotion going on. But there's one person in the scene who's still, who's calm. He's quiet. He's poised. He's waiting. It's the harpooner. The harpooner. It's the only person that's not freaking out, standing still. And then Melville writes this. To ensure the greatest efficiency in the dart, the harpooners of this world must start to their feet out of idleness and not out of toil. Here's my point. When you get all that Jesus has done for you, he's got it covered. You don't got to fret, you don't freak out about things, you don't got to worry about all that. He's got it covered. You can then live your life from a place of stillness, from a place of peace, from a place of joy. And that's a good life. It's a life of gratitude for God's saving grace and his sustaining grace. It's a life of adventure being spurred on and rooted in God's word. And it's a life of joy as you're fully loved, fully forgiven, fully embraced by the God of the universe. And so let's grab hold of that together. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you uh, for my friends. Thank you for your word. God, may it spur us into action. May we live lives that, that honor you. But Lord, may we not do it to earn anything. May we not do it out of obligation, but may we do it because Jesus has done everything for us. Teach us to live in the joy that he gives us. That everything's taken care of. That everything's going to be okay because you sent him for us. May we find hope in him this day and always. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Acts Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at actschurchleander.com.